Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hello, my name is Peter Pascucci, and I'm here with Oren Silfer and Mark LaFleur, the owner of Old Pass Glass. In part one of Mark's episode, we had a deep dive into some of the amazing things happening at Old Fast Glass, and in this week's episode, we're really excited to continue the conversation. Mark, something we touched on before we started recording that I wanted to make sure that we talked about was, I think there's a big conversation that we have a lot with other cinematographers and directors and, and people who are in production in general about work-life balance. And I wanted to hear your feelings about that as somebody who was a cinematographer, striving to achieve that balance, moved into running a rental house, and also what the challenges are of achieving that work-life balance as a rental house owner, and just how that also dovetailed into your feelings about achieving that balance from a production standpoint versus, you know, now this other kind of job that you've taken on. I think that I'm sure 99% of people that are listening right now know how challenging the work-life balance is in, in our particular industry, especially when things are busy. And when I was really working before I even thought about renting equipment, I was doing 12, 13 hour days. And when you, you know, you can, you count lunch and the commute, it was just work and sleep. There was almost no time for anything else. I was doing a lot of jobs that were six day weeks. And at the beginning I was traveling a lot. So I was seeing the world and that was great. But very quickly at what I would not call an old age, <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, this is getting old. I'm, I'm getting close to burnout. The money's good, but I don't know if I love my lifestyle. And then the rental thing started to just kind of creep in where I was starting to buy equipment as I had extra money. I thought, well, I'll, I'll buy some equipment. Maybe that can make me some money on the side, or maybe I'll consign the lenses at a rental house and have a little passive income or whatever. That was the very early stages of rehousing lenses. So there were particular things that I knew I wanted that maybe weren't out there. So that's how that started. And when the rental started for me, it was very much just a, a side hustle. And it was easy when things were slow, when my freelance work was not as much. It was like, oh, this is easy. I'm just going to hang out at home and wait for somebody to come and pick up some lenses from me. No big deal. But when I was doing both, I remember one day I had the apartment supervisor open the door for a client to go into my bedroom and grab a set of lenses, hopefully just the set they rented out of my bedroom. <laughs> I'm not there. And it was just like, what am I doing? This is crazy. And... I think that rental house owners that are cinematographers and they do both, they are consistently working and they're running the rental house. And I think that's amazing. I am so obsessive and so hands-on with old fast glass that to do things the way that I really want to do them, it really means I have to give a lot of energy to this. I looked at it for it probably just a couple of days of like, all right, let me, can I do both? Can I have the freelance career and do this? And I could tell that one, I would probably get burned out immediately. And two, they would probably both suffer. Actually, I think I'd be tired on set. I wouldn't have time for pre-production. And then on this side, I would not be able to give good customer service. I'd have clients being let in by the building manager to grab lenses from my closet. So it was, it really was a crossroads where I, I felt like I had to genuinely commit to one or the other. And so I decided to commit to this. And Looking back, I was just excited about it. I probably should have been a little more scared about it because I literally said, goodbye to my career. I stopped working as a cinematographer, but it was the only way to get this to where I wanted it. Absolutely being able to devote myself to this, to just have this be what I think about, even when there's no clients here, 
I'm thinking about what's the next lens project I want to do. And I will say that I was at a point in my career where I was starting to think, what does this look like as I get older and older as a cinematographer? And I wasn't super excited about all aspects of that, of what that was looking like. Yeah. And, um, and I did like the idea of if I got this to where I wanted it to be, that I could have sort of a normal nine to five, that I could have a Monday through Friday, weekends off, take vacation time, not have to worry if I plan a vacation, am I going to get the best freelance project during that time and then have to choose my vacation or the project. Which inevitably happens. what happens every single time. Every single time. As we know. So it's ironic because I don't have the work-life balance yet because I am a workaholic and I am still very much building this company. This yeah. we're, We are getting to where I want it to be, but we're not there yet. And so I'm putting in crazy amounts of hours here, but I do see where it's going. And I do have a plan for being able to pull back and let some of it go, be still super involved in the client part of it and the lens recommendations and lens development, but not have to be as part of the day-to-day. And then I, I actually do think that I will find the work balance that I've been looking for, but it's one of the most challenging things about our industry. I, I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think people in other industries understand really how challenging it is. It was definitely a big factor in my decision to do this. Beyond what you're doing here in terms of just building a really amazing rental company is you're also putting an emphasis on education and programs that allow people to come in and learn and do workshops, film loading, lens testing, all this kind of stuff. I'm curious where your desire to educate kind of originated from. Like, I don't think it's super common with other rental houses to see that kind of initiative. And so, yeah, I'm wondering, like, at what point did you decide that that was going to be also a part of all of these endeavors in order to build this company into what you hope for it to be? I think that all of us have that point. I'm sure you've been there super nervous before a project for one reason or another. And and a lot of times that nervousness is because you're there's a lot of stakes, or maybe you're just doing something you haven't done before. Maybe you said yes to something that somewhere in the back of your head, you're like, I'm not quite ready for this, maybe. And I think that in our industry, once you get out of film school, if you went to film school, it's not the easiest thing to have access to equipment and people to teach you. Because you can either take this industry was very much set up as a more of an apprenticeship, especially in the camera and lighting departments, where you start at the bottom and you have these mentors that you're working under that you can just soak up information from. And I think that there's not as much of that happening. I think a lot of us are fast tracking our careers for various reasons, whether it be the equipment is easier to get, that you can find a lot of information online. But we do feel like people do have a hunger to dive into something that they're not quite ready for. And I think there's something great about that. There's something beautiful about that, but there's also something that can be problematic about that. And we've one of the things we've been really pushing hard lately and trying to support and keep alive is film. And film, for anyone who shot it, knows that there are a lot more risks that come with it and when compared to shooting digital. But it's not something that you maybe necessarily just want to dive in without doing your prep and your research. And so film loading was big for us because we wanted people to feel like it was accessible, that it wasn't this other thing that another generation was doing and how am I even going to get in there? You know, a lot of the people that were shooting that, they're they're 20, 30, 40 years older than me. And so for us, it was like, all right, we're going to do these shops. We're going to do them regularly. So you don't even have to worry about missing one. You can come back. And if anything, if it just gets people over that hump of, oh, this isn't that scary. Okay. This film camera is actually a very simple machine. There's only so much you can do. And and if I just do this, this, and this, it's going to work properly. If you get people over that fear, over that hump, 
usually they get really excited about it then. And then they'll do the work on their own. They'll call us up and say, hey, I have a job. We just had an AC who was working with one of our 35 millimeter cameras, Penelope, hadn't ever had a chance to get a Penelope, a hands on Penelope. I'm not surprised there's like 40 of them in the world. And so they came out for like a four day prep, three or four day prep. And the first days were just getting familiar with the camera. Literally just sat with our team and just loaded and loaded and loaded and went through the camera and all the quirks. And by the time they were done with that prep, they felt comfortable. And that's what it's about for us is usually people, if they're very interested in this stuff, they're going to do everything they can to get the information they can. But the workshops usually get them past that first moment of like, oh, I'm scared of this. Even like we just did one that was very specifically towards camera assistance, where it was a focus bug, high five, real one, Aries ecosystem of accessories kind of workshop. And anyone who's been, in a, any AC who's been in a prep, you have just enough time to prep. It's not like you have time to take a deep dive into all the menus. We had the best possible people leading that uh, workshop from both Airy and Focus Bug. So now you have the people leave and they're just like, they're no longer have hesitation about using that gear. Instead of being like, oh, I know the Nucleus, I'll just stick with the Nucleus on this next job. Now they're like, no, this other tool has much more capabilities. I'm familiar with it now. I'm ready for it. And it will actually make them a better camera assistant. Anything that gives you an edge, anything that gives you an advantage or saves time on set is huge. So if we can educate people and get them to be comfortable with this equipment, all it's going to do is make them better at their job. But it also, it gets people through the door. They see the gear is here. They see what we have. Some of this stuff, especially the film cameras, you maybe know what an SR3 is. You've heard of it. But if you haven't had, got your hands on one, it, it's meaningless what it is until you actually like touched it. We're like really pushing our Bolexes, our updated modified Bolexes. And that was the camera that I had to shoot my projects on in film school. And it's crazy that so many years later, I'm like, really? I'm going back to this camera <laughs> and people are loving this little camera, but it's the smallest Super 16 camera you can get your hands on and people are loving it. And the more that we can get people to walk through the door and put their hands on that, they have that moment of like, oh yeah, I love this. I want more of this. Um, and it just gets them excited about the stuff we have here. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I can't stress enough how much of a mitzvah it is that you guys do that and do the educational programs and like just the contribution to the industry at large is like insurmountable. I want to loop back to something we touched on earlier and ask you a question. Between all the lens options that we have at our fingertips these days, and as a DP, it's certainly overwhelming. Yeah. We have the sort of set of legacy lenses, what I would call like lenses that have been popular for the last 20, 30 years, your S4s and your Master Primes and Ultra Primes that are not going anywhere. You have vintage lenses that have seen this resurgence. You have a whole new project just from the last couple of years of rehousing old stills lenses, which has been a huge thing lately and has opened the door to like some amazing glass that I really, really love. It just we weren't you weren't able to put on a cinema camera up until now. It, it, just the housings weren't right. But I can also say that like I was testing for a recent project and we looked at our goal was to look at every anamorphic lens out there, like every sort of modern anamorphic lens. And there are many of them, a lot of them just from the last couple of years, uh, and some of them are still prototypes. And there's so many good options out there that at a certain point, you're kind of like, you start putting on a new one and you're like, oh yeah, that's nice. I mean, I saw something similar that I liked a little bit better, but this one's good too. Yep. And, and this one's also good. So the big headline question is, do you think we've reached peak lens? <laughs> 
And and if not, what do you think is like the next evolution in in lensing? Like what where haven't we gone yet? I will say there are there are people based on some of our clients that there is no peak lens. <laughs> there is just more, 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 more flavors. And we we genuinely have clients like going back to like our trust thing of we want to be able to say, this sounds like the lens you need for your project, you use it. And we've often seen, we have clients that they'll use one or two or three sets of lenses just nonstop. And I love that. They're like, this is my look, or I love these. There's nothing I like more and I'm gonna use those. And then we have clients that are, they are they wanna go through all of them. They wanna test them all because they are all unique. They all do something different. And we're getting into this, this point that I really like, especially for commercial work where you, you sort of wanna make a big impact in a short amount of time. We had a client that was like, they knew they were doing clothing that was kind of golds and warm colors. And they knew they were gonna have a very like saturated cyan blue sky. They wanted really punchy gold lens flares. And I was like, all right, you got this lens and that lens. And I think that we are at that level of people wanting to be so specific about the look that they want. And we're hearing it from a lot of people that I, I don't think we've hit peak lens yet. And there are, I will say, there are places where it's overly saturated, where we probably don't, if we never made anything else in certain segments, we'd probably be fine. Right. There are other segments that are actually where we need more. Before you, you showed up, we were actually talking about zooms. And that was, a, that was a big push for us in the past few years. We felt that there was an absolute giant hole in the market for vintage, especially full frame zooms. There was nothing. Like I said to you before, you know, they have Baltars or something. They're like, oh, well, what zoom matches those? And I'm always really honest with people. So I was like, nothing, nothing matches those. There is no zoom that matches those. If anyone tells you there's a zoom that matches those, they're lying to you. And so it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to maybe put some filtration on this or something that's not going to work because that's not going to change the bokeh and the distortion and everything else. Right. So we haven't hit peak lens in certain segments. I would say in full frame vintage lenses, we're probably there. Yeah. We have tons of good options. In Super 35, we're probably there because for so many years, that was where all the cinema lens companies were putting all of their investment like, to make amazing Super 35 lenses. Anamorphic, I think there's room. Zooms, I think there's room. I do think that anamorphic in recent uh, months has been getting a little more crowded. I think that there are some practical aspects that are still, where there's still room, there's still not enough anamorphics that focus close. There's still not enough anamorphics that have a lot of character and are small. And I still think that what we continually see is a lot of the vintage anamorphics that we have, they've really filled sort of a need that people had when maybe they couldn't get lenses from Panavision or Hawk, or they wanted that more off menu, maybe even funkier option, but maybe long form, maybe some of those options would be too funky for like a full TV series or a, a feature, depending on the content. And so I think that there's a lot of, there's still plenty of room in the sharper and like in the middle where things aren't too funky and they're not too sharp. And I think you're going to see a lot of lenses coming out there. Right now, there's been such a boom in buying that it has attracted a lot of lens makers into the lens. Not to get into the economics of this, but yeah. so right now you're going to see a lot of vanilla, I feel like. You're going to see a lot of just like, oh, people are buying lenses, let's make some. And there's going to be sort of like a lot of like, let's see what sticks. There's so many new ones that came out just recently, like Viltrox and, and yeah. Laua's Proteus and, yep. and yep. Anomorphs and, and at lower prices too. The Mercuries yeah. are cheaper than the Orions. Yeah. So you're going to see that. You're going to see lots of price point and variation and a lot of stuff that just sort of feels in the middle. 
Old fast glass is not at peak lens yet because I love this term, peak lens. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I just we, took it from peak TV. You know, I'm like, I'm like, we definitely hit peak TV. There's way too many TV shows, good ones, uh, and good ones, but uh, but also too many to keep up with. I yeah, with for us for for us, peak lenses. There have been some lenses that that selfishly I want to see. Right. Um, that have not been done yet. And we are developing some stuff that I'm really, really, really excited about. Awesome. Um, so for us, the next the next phase, I don't want to give away too much to, I hate to say it, but our competitors. But I think there are going to be some new trends that you see in the lenses that are coming out soon. We haven't seen peak lens. And you'll see the things that we are going to be coming out with in the next, over the next six to 18 months are where I see that there are still places in the market where I can't quite give my client what they're asking for. And that's where it comes down to me is, is I endlessly will hear someone say, I really love these lenses, but man, they just flare too much in this environment. Right. Or man, I just, I wish they were a little faster or I wish they focused a little closer. There's usually something. So now it's, all right, how do we get most of what you love about this set and then do the other things you wish it did? And so that's the next that's the next chapter for us. Yeah, I do really relate to that because I've definitely noticed that with a lot of lenses that I've been testing where there's always like maybe one element that I'm just like, oh, I wish the, you know, the shape of the iris and the bokeh just wasn't quite what it is, you know, but I like everything else about it. And and actually, to be completely frank, like when we did that big anamorphic test of all the modern anamorphics, there were only two that we really loved. And it was the Zelmus Apollo Mark IIs and the Mercuries. Yeah. And everything beyond that was good i mean it was decent it's good quality yeah uh, affordable like there's some amazing stuff but there were those were the only two out of we tested a lot of lenses that were like oh what well, there's something really special here right uh and so that does tell you that there really is a gap there because even there those sets i mean the mercuries are brand new there's only three focal lengths now they're in mm -hmm. four and they're not even on the market yet no nope. i don't think right so it's these the are all set. these are all prototypes and demo mm -hmm. sets so that's like still an ongoing project the zelmuses are great they do have some mechanical flaws like it's not they're not perfect lenses but for what they are and for the price point and the image that you get out of them they are to me at least like the most interesting of the recent batch of lenses that we've gotten of sort of modern anamorphics with vintage qualities yep. i guess if, if you want to call it that mm -hmm. but uh, yeah there's definitely there is a lot of room there there's a lot of room so yeah we uh, we are net peak lens here you're right i'm convinced <laughs> you've convinced me yes and i will say yeah i'm excited because you i feel like you've you've done a couple rounds of lens tests with us yeah. now. And and I love that of when we, you know, it's crazy how fast time goes by because you'll think, oh, you're testing and oh, you haven't been here for a year. Yeah. Um, but in that time, in a year's time, we tend to add a lot of lenses Absolutely. to our catalog and, and in, in different segments. And, and that time you tested, you might've been really looking at anamorphics. You come back again and you need zooms for some reason. And it's like, oh, we have eight new zooms you haven't looked at. Or yes. now that the Alexa 35 is really helping Super 35 get a resurgence, right? we are now able to look at options there that were sort of overshadowed by the full frame surge that we saw. And mm -hmm. now, hey, let's revisit these. This camera's amazing. And if you still want to have some of that fall off, full frame lenses give you a little bit of a sweet spot thing going on when you use them on a Super 35 camera. So if you still want that fall off, or rediscover lenses that you had to ignore because they weren't covering the sensor you wanted. Yeah. Now we can go revisit all those. So I, I think there's still a lot. And I mean, the zooms are, are a perfect example of if we were having this conversation a year ago, I would say we're not even close to peak because there's an entire segment that has nothing, nothing. 
Yeah. So Mark, in addition to all of the sort of amazing educational efforts going on with the things you talked about, like film loading and testing out like high five focus systems and things like that, we've noticed that there's like a whole new push toward education, even in things like the CineLens manual textbook and these amazing resources that the community and the industry has kind of come together and, and created for for DPs and for filmmakers. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your involvement in this amazing Texas Cine Lens Manual and and kind of where you see that that type of education going. I wrote the Cine Lens Manual. <laughs> me and me alone, no. Jay Holbin and Chris Probst spent, it was something like eight or nine years compiling the Cine Lens Manual. And I think it's really important to understand that. And the reason it took so long was because, again, like I said, we had a lens here, the Fujinon 28-280, this vintage zoom we just dropped which if you Google search it right now, you will find nothing. And so when you're trying to put together the CineLens manual and you want to get into sort of the history of some of this stuff, some lenses you can find something like Cook has a nice little part of their website that's more of like the history of Cook, but it just blurbs. It's not a lot because it's a website. Who wants to like, you know, go too far down the rabbit hole on a website where you're just trying to find out the close focus of their lens or something. And so... They had to get so much of their information from like interviewing people directly and the people that designed and made these lenses and they're 80 years old or they're not alive anymore. Like they would, they would hit dead ends where they're like, oh, this person designed these lenses in, in Japan. Oh, they, they're dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, we found this one person to talk to about this one lens project and that's the only way we'll get information on it. Oh, he's grumpy and he doesn't want to talk to us. <laughs> it was so hard for them just to find any information at all. And so my involvement was honestly very limited. We'd been talking about the project for a while. They sent me an early cut to read. And I was just like, how can I help? Because I just want information to get out there. And so one of the things they did was stop by and they photographed a lot of our lenses because we have unique lenses here that not everyone has. So they, it was very easy for them to get a lot of the photo assets they needed in one place. They went to Kesslow and Auto and Panavision, all kinds of places to get these lenses. And then, of course, we had our book signing event for them here. And that was really, for me, it was, I want people to know about this. Because for me, it's just another way of celebrating the history of cinema lenses. And for people that are really excited about this stuff, um, who want to take the deep dive, it is kind of, it is really interesting to see where um, some of these things came came from, how they came about, and sort of these these funny little similarities you'll see between sets of not realizing like, oh, that set was built over here in Japan and that set was built over here in America and they both use Cookspeed Pancros and oh that that's that's so interesting. I don't know. Any lens geek was just like this is the best text ever and there's never been anything like it and I mean you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours with it and I love that it's been a success. I love that they sold out. It just showed me people really do care about this stuff. They really geek out about this stuff and there's there's no other way really to find some of the information they have. Because like I said, it, a lot of it came from interviewing people. So it's just the most amazing educational text that there is about cinema lenses. Yeah, it's overwhelming, honestly. I, I We kind of made a, uh, some DP friends and I were talking about how, like, how daunting like getting through this text is, honestly. But like one thing that a friend suggested that I thought was really smart was that you like buy the text and then each time you do a prep, whatever lens you're using, you go into the text and you read all about that lens and then you do your job. And I thought that was a cool way to kind of kind of get through it. But yeah, it's an amazing, amazing resource. Yeah. If you try to just like start at page one and read it, you'd be exhausted. But it is the kind of thing where it's like, oh, let me look that up. If you look at if you look at it like an encyclopedia, like 
in that way of just going to the pages where it says cook pancro and finding the little threads and where that takes you that's the fun way to do it and it is it's just absolutely amazing thank you to to both of the authors for putting in the hard work to to make that thing one thing that's that's really amazing about ofg is the way that you guys integrate technology into rental prep and into lens testing and i find it so helpful the way that you guys integrate camera to cloud through frame io into your lens testing and i'd love to just hear a little bit about how you integrate that how it helps your clients and how you've seen that sort of affect the trends of lens testing i think in the simplest most obvious form it speeds up that whole process right instead of recording the cards and dumping the cards on a hard drive and then editing the footage and inviting people to I don't know, sending links so here's a video here's a two-hour upload to vimeo instead of doing all that um it's so streamlined so there's the obvious just like time savings for clients which is just so unbelievably helpful but for me what i really liked about it more than anything was it now got the entire team excited about the lens test process and that's what i want i want lens testing to be so a normal part of pre-production that everyone wants to be involved in it so when you use camera to cloud and you're using frame io most people are using frame io in general even if they're not using camera to cloud it's such an amazing way to just communicate with your team because it's so easy to invite someone to the group to share it's just so fast it's already sort of part of production so that's what we loved is immediately the dps has the account maybe and they're just inviting their director their producer wardrobe everybody to this and they're all making comments they're already starting to look at oh there's our actor and there's the wardrobe and oh this is what the lens look like oh wow these lenses are really sharp so maybe that's going to affect hair and makeup i don't know but i know that it brings everybody into this pre-production side of of lens testing um that just makes me really happy and the fact that it's so streamlined the fact that the footage is uploading while you're sitting there that everything by the time you walk out of the building has been uploaded and you're already sharing it to people the fact that it speeds up that part of the process that they don't have to hang out afterwards and dump all their cards it's just a no-brainer and it's now so standard for everybody involved or all of our clients that look at some of our clients folders and it's i mean they've come back here over and over again and it's they've tested every lens we have and it's and that's great also is because obviously if your footage is living anywhere in the cloud it's easy to access but people are building a library of test footage here that right. they can access. So maybe they don't even have time to come back, but they can share their Frame.io you know, library with the clients on their next project. Hey, I tested these lenses a few months ago. Here's what I'm thinking of using on this project. What do you think? And again, because you're using Frame.io, which is already such a great way to share information with your team, it just makes it so easy. Mark, in last week's episode, we asked the first part of a two-part question. What was your first set of lenses? This week, we would like to know, what is your favorite set of lenses? Part two is is hard. There's there's definitely, I have been asked this question many times. I still have not found a set of lenses that does everything my favorite. Okay, so that's why I can't say there's one set. And I don't want that to be a cop-out. Still have not found one set that's, that flares the way I want, the bokeh is the way I want, the, everything. It doesn't exist yet. I will say, and I hate to give this ridiculous teaser, because we already gave this teaser at our Cinegear open house, we are working on a set of lenses right now that will be my favorite set of lenses. Awesome. Um, so my favorite set of lenses has not come out yet, but it's being built. Fantastic. Right now. And I'm I'm so excited about them. And if people like them or not, just know that this is what I like in lenses. So if you're curious what my aesthetic is, if I could shoot on anything, the lenses we're going to be releasing soon are what I would shoot on. 
for I would say 95% of my projects on full frame. If it's a full frame camera, this is my number one choice. Um, but I don't want to leave you with just that because that's kind of mean. So as far as like favorites go, I am going to still break it up into a couple options. So for just how they make somebody look, the way they look wide open, the unique bokeh, and the fact that even though they're simple lenses, they're not like master primes, they somehow don't breathe, which I don't understand, are Lomo super speeds. Lomo super, super speeds are... They're not, they're rehoused, but they're not rehoused still lenses. They are, these are rehoused cinema lenses made for 35 millimeter motion picture film. They're made in Russia in the 80s and they are unbelievably beautiful. They're like just as sharp as I want a lens to be, just as low contrast as I want a lens to be. What they do to bokeh, what they do to out of focus parts of your frame is unreal. It's so beautiful. And I like that they're all pretty fast. The widest lens was an 18. We just got the very, very, very rare 14, which is being rehoused right now. I absolutely love them. That would be one of my go-tos for most things where vintage lenses are okay. They are like the Russian super speeds um, for me, where if I if if I knew those existed when I bought the super speeds, if I knew I could get them rehoused, it would have been hard not to get those over the super speeds. Right. If I'm shooting, and they're super 35, so that's why I have to have a couple options here. Yep, yep. If I'm shooting full frame, I think the most one of the most well-rounded sets of lenses for speed, performance, but also character and flare character. Lomo Super Speeds are beautiful. I like the flares, but I think there's a lens that edges them out in flares and it's just as fast but covers full frame. And that is, I know it's not the most exciting or unique answer is K35s. I do love them. And our FD versions with the FDX 18 that covers full frame and 35, they are, I think, they're as close as you can get to that perfect balance of they're, you can shoot them wide open. They're not too funky where it's going to distract anyone. No producer or director is going to be like, what is going on? What is, why is nothing sharp? Why, why is this totally milky? What's going on? But they still, the flares are unbelievably beautiful and the wides don't breathe too much. So they're very easy to live with. And then notable mentions that I have to know because they're so special to me because I'm just obsessed with gold lens flares um, is if you're shooting Super 35 Calipromenars, if you're shooting full frame, something in that Canon rangefinder world, like Canon rangefinders or type SKs for full frame, where those are funkier. Um, they, lots of veiling glare, lots of character, but if you really want to make an impact and have something that's just adding a lot to your images, if you need that, if you need something to have, like make a real visual impact, those are two of my favorites. That was the most perfect geeky answer we could have ever expected and wanted, so thank you. Peter, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite lens? Oh, um, that's tough. It, it's a tough question to ask anybody. 100%. One set of lenses that's had like staying power for me that when I think about it, I'm just like, oh, so beautiful are just Super 35 Cook Speed Pancros, I think are like super beautiful the way they flare. I love that they're a two one, so it's not like too unwieldy in terms of the stop. The 75 millimeter Cook Speed Pancro, I think is a super beautiful lens. But honestly, like I think my answers would have been pretty in line with Mark's. Like Super Speeds have also had that same staying power for me in a huge way. And as I've moved to large format, yeah, it's been a lot of Canon FD, a lot of rangefinder, even, you know, Nikon. Yeah, I mean, lately I've just been obsessed with anamorphic, so I'm just going all in on anamorphic. We've talked to, like, DPs who have described the sort of psychological effect of a lens choice. And, like, for me, it's, like, always trying to get to that place where, you know, filmmaking is about breaking you out of reality. And lately I've just been realizing how much anamorphic does that. It's like we see spherical, you know, when we get close to and something physically like the out of focus area is spherical. And so I've been really loving playing with like 
the experimental nature of anamorphic and what it does psychologically to the viewer. And that's where I've been at. It's just like going through all the different options of anamorphic and having a lot of fun with that. My list had no anamorphics on it. And I'm glad you brought that up. You, I've no joke said the exact words you've said of we see spherical. I mean, spherical operates the same way our, our eyes do. Anamorphic does not. And I, and I think the combination of how anamorphic sees the world completely different than the way do we do. And I, I mean, at least growing up, the movies I grew up with were of like Panavision, C, E, G series, like barrel distortion, big flares, fall off on the edges. It, it to me, anamorphic is also so tied into my favorite like big blockbuster movies growing up that as soon as I see it on a camera, it automatically you know, puts me in a place. I think we obsess over lenses and probably a lot of people that are listening to this right now obsess over lenses. I don't think people at home watching obsess over lenses, but I do think they feel that. And I think anamorphic, even if they don't feel all the spherical choices and all the little nuance of that, I don't think anyone doesn't feel anamorphic when an anamorphic lens is on the camera. It does change everything. And it's it's one of the reasons that I, I'm so thrilled when Aerie released a 4 by 3 sensor and brought anamorphic just raging back into our lives. And the fact that we're choosing it for aesthetics um, when it was originally chose just to get a bigger negative to get as you know, much resolution as we could. The fact that lenses, inward lenses are now being designed for character, not not resolution. It's so exciting because I do think anamorphic is cinema watching. Absolutely. It's funny though you brought up Lama Super Speeds because I did a test at Able recently where a friend of mine has a full set of Lama Super Speeds that got rehoused and Able is now holding them. But like I've been so on the anamorphic train that like I forgot some of the huge practical benefits of spherical like yeah. we, we were seeing the close focus and i was like oh shit like <laughs> and they're still incredibly beautiful and we shot them on the alexa 35 which like that dynamic range paired with lomo super speeds is unreal it's like so milky so beautiful just like a crazy combination that's been the combo i would say it's the most popular combo going out right now is lomo super speeds and alexa 35 and that my favorite thing about that release of that camera was that super 35 was that everybody has been ignoring some of the best lenses that were ever made. And now that we are really looking at those not as like, oh, I need to shoot Super 35. Is it, we're now looking at them as like, all right, what's the best lens set I can put on this project for this sensor? It's really making me happy with how many amazing lenses are getting another chance. How about you, Arn? What's your favorite lens? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer the question this way. If I was forced by like some mythical being to choose one lens to shoot everything on for the rest of my career it would be the 35 millimeters ice super speed wow wow it's gorgeous yeah it's so good and you can sh you could just shoot everything it's the perfect focal length yep and uh yeah i love for super speed i know yeah. how great is that we all <laughs> they're so good yeah they're so good yeah all right. Well, thank you so much to Mark and thank you to Old Pass Class for having us for this two-part episode and we'll see you next week. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Oren Sofer, and David Kruta with original music by One Wave. We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon and we would like to extend a special thanks to the salon community for sourcing topics for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks.